Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And remember, over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, yesterday we put up part two of our Bikes versus Skis conversations. And you guys know, I'm often saying that, oh, this is a fun thing, but it's a pretty dumb series. But come on, deep down, you all know that I'm actually lying and that we just actually love that particular Bikes vs. Ski series more than just about anything. And can't really imagine any self-respecting Gear 30 listener to not also love that series. So there, I said it. Anyway, subscribe to our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast to check out part two of Bikes vs. Skis, because it's awesome. Anyway, speaking of awesome, and yeah, admittedly a lot more important and informative, today we are continuing our series on the current state of helmet tech, and our guest is Oscar Huss, who is the head of product at POC. Now, in this conversation, Oscar and I go really, really deep into the numerous variables that need to be considered when setting up a way or figuring out your particular way to go about testing helmets. We also talk about head forms, which is, you know, the thing and the shape of the thing that you actually put into a helmet before companies go dropping weights on these helmets or slamming them up against car windshields or whatever to determine how safe these helmets actually are. So yeah, today you're probably going to hear more about head forms maybe than you've ever heard in your life. And then among other things in this conversation, we also talk about kids' helmets, which is a really interesting conversation and I think is going to raise some issues for you that you might not have considered previously. So once again, I am confident that you are going to learn some new things in this conversation. And so let's get to it. Well, Oscar, how are you today and where are you today? So I am uh, over in Sweden. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm. I'm doing good. Uh, we are. Um, we're having like a 30 degrees uh, Celsius and, and really sunny and warm here today. So it's uh, it's amazing. And it's um, you missed the longest day of the year with just a few days. So we have um, those long light uh, nights, and that's that's nice for a change. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You're an interesting guy doing interesting things uh, at POC. Just to kick us off, I'd love to have you give us a bit of the backstory on POC. Talk a bit about when was the company founded and how has the company evolved? Yeah, so POC was founded uh, in the early 2000s, I think 2004, 2005, um, by, um, uh, by a, a skiing dad who had uh, his two sons uh, competing in, in, in race skiing. And um, Stefan Utteborn, who's the founder, he, he saw his uh, kids and other kids, you know, skiing. Uh, there were a couple of things going on uh, at that moment with the kind of the introduction of the carving ski had brought the, the speeds up. I think uh, athletes were skiing faster and jumping longer and all those things that we know. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, kind of the level of protection had had remained fairly constant over the years. Um, so, so I, th- I think he saw a, a need for, um, you know, better protection. For, for skiers, um, and and that's kind of the backstory. So founded um, a, a mission of the company, saying that we should do what we can to um, protect lives and uh, reduce consequences of accidents. That's what we're all about, and and trying to combine the perspectives of kind of uh, material science, industrial engineering, where we where we come from, and industrial design, and combining that with the medical perspectives kind of liaising with the, with doctors and the experts in head trauma and so on and trying to just innovate within the field of protection. And, and that's the, the background. Uh, we, we realized quite early that skiing is, uh, is kind of limited to, to the winter, of course, everyone knows that. So, so trying to, uh, to see what, what can we do in the summer and uh, adding cycling 
uh, a couple of years down. I think 2009 was the first season uh, of cycling. And then, then, so skiing has more or less always been bigger for us, but cycling has had a bigger growth. And uh, last year, actually, uh, cycling passed uh, skiing in, in terms of, um, of sales. So so now we're, we're almost balanced. Uh, cycling is still growing faster. So I think we'll see a more, um, yeah, we'll see more and more cycling helmets and cycling protection. But I think the, the interesting thing there is that the, the, the need for protection, whether you're out on your bike or on your skis is fairly fairly similar um the, the speeds are, are similar and the they i think the um the users in many cases are are similar as well that's what we saw in the beginning you know the people that that go to whistler in the in the winter to ski they often go there to, in the summer to to mountain bike and so on so there, there were some obvious synergies between those two sports and uh, so mountain biking is obviously there where we started but then kind of adding on the road cycling and the commuting cycling all, all so now we're more or less interested in any any kind of bike that you're on um and and trying to to protect um for for those so um i joined the company in early 2006 so um, um as one of the first employees i think we had just uh, the company had just been started up and we we started to to develop uh, the product so i started together with another designer and engineer and since then i've kind of um yeah, dedicated um, all my time to to trying to come up with uh, with better protection one way or another, and and um, building building a team. Uh, so so today we have a full range team of, um, of the industrial designers and the product developers working on anything from from helmets to I mean we we supply top to toe everything that you can wear when you're out riding your bike except for your shoes essentially. So we have uh, the full range of apparel as well and and sunglasses and 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 so on. What is your official title now at POC? Yeah, the, I, I think I've been called anything, but uh, the, the product <laughs> <Sure>. guy or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, exactly. But, but uh, I think uh, on my, on my business card today, it probably says product direct, director. So that means that I oversee uh, everything that has to do with, with products. And we have a couple of different teams. So we have the, I, I was mentioning the apparel team. Uh, so that's, that's one team. We have a hard goods team. Hard goods in that sense is uh, helmets, uh, body armor, goggles, and, and eyewear. And then we have a, a digital team that's um, kind of integrating digital technology in one way or another into our products when it comes to sensors and, and uh, lights, uh, anything that has, um, that has electronics into it. Uh, and then I also have a, a sourcing and compliance team um, that I manage. Okay, I've got to ask you then about your own background because I, I still think like, Anybody who is sort of in charge, especially of safety products, there's a lot of responsibility here. And so I'm always very curious how one, you know, gets born, does some stuff, ends up going to school and ends up in a position like this. So I'd love to hear a bit about, like, say, your own background in sports and then also specifically your education path that got you to this position. Yeah, and I think just like many others in in our industry, I, I you know I grew up in a in a ski racing uh, family and ski racing environment, and I, I ski raced until I was uh, nineteen, and then um, you know got myself a ski instructor's license and start and I started to go down to the Alps and worked for a few seasons and lived in in Chamonix, uh, in France, uh, and and. Um, uh, kind of had this this dream, just like many others, to to kind of um, uh, connect to, to skiing one way or another, because it's 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 the best thing you can do, right? Uh, if you, if you if you love that. Uh, at the same time, I, I went to university, just like many others. I got myself a master's degree in mechanical engineering, combined with product uh, design, and and really, I love the. Um, products brands and innovation and and then it became kind of a good match uh, poke started up at the time i got to hear about it from one of my skiing friends and and then the um, has just raised their first round of money and and uh, had uh, uh, could could hire and then um, then that's uh, the kind of the, the the path and where it started and back then we didn't have any any products really we we just um, we had just um, 
uh, very ambitious plan and then a very ambitious um, vision of, of where we wanted to go and then some initial designs but no real you know working mass production and so on so it's been a, a rather long journey of, of learning how to how to create helmets and how to create protection and what should we look for and how should we design them and and who should manufacture them to the level we want and and how do we train those uh, vendors and so on so um so I think there there were many things coming together. Uh, the first, the, the very first position I had just before POC was actually at Volvo, uh, the, the car manufacturer working on, on the um, safety in cars. So I kind of had that passion trying to to make sense, um, and uh, so it became a good uh, good match with all of that coming together. Um, and then as POC started. Kind of looking into cycling, I um, as part of that journey, I went to to buy a mountain bike and trying to understand what it was about and the ergonomics and could we make a difference and so on. And and since then, I'm I mean now I have the whole fleet of different bikes and I, I actually ride bikes more than uh, than I ski because of the convenience I have just behind my house and can go out on daily. So so by, uh, so that's also brought kind of a whole new new sport into my life, which is a luxury uh, for anyone. To, to kind of find find a passion like that in, in in a different field. So let's get into it. We've been talking, you know. Now we have talked with uh, Stola from Sweet Protection. We talked with Rob Wesson from Giro and Bell, and we've talked with Steve Belfay from Pret. Just getting each company's different sort of approach to safety certifications. I guess I'll just put the question to you to see, you know, give you the chance to say, well, this is POC's approach. This is how we view the different safety certifications out there. And over the past number of years, this is this has been our approach or if that approach has changed at all, I'll give you the floor on this one. Yeah, thank you. And, and good to hear that you have been, um, you know, interviewing the, those other uh, people from the industry, because I think the more the more someone has been into testing, the more you also realize that testing is really complex. And, uh, and I, I think that's one of the most common questions that I get, like, what's the what's the best and safest helmet? And then the, the, my, my question back is that it, it depends where, where do you plan to crash and what speed and what temperature and what angle. And if, if I know all these things, I can set that helmet up perfectly for you with the dimensions that we have. Uh, but but and I think that also is both the, the benefit and the limitation of, of standardized testing that they, they bring uh, a set of test routines and then uh, um, everyone needs to pass them. And I think the good thing about that is that uh, it brings uh, to the consumer, you can go out and buy more or less any helmet today, uh, whatever price point you're looking at, you, you will still get the kind of a baseline safety and, and it's going to be a good helmet. I think we, we test uh, uh, more or less everything that we found uh, find interesting in terms of uh, competitors and, and our own helmets and so on. And and I, am, I mean, it's safe to say that almost all helmets are really good today. And, and that's not the way it was um, you know, 20 years or, or so ago, because then it was much more, um, uh, much bigger differences. So I think that what the, those standardized testing has, has brought is, is kind of a baseline um, uh, testing that you can feel secure with as a customer. And, and that's something good overall. Uh, the, the negative thing there is that, um, uh, that those tests differ and the priorities differ like if we compare i mean we are a a european brand with uh, with the us as our biggest market for example uh, and the testing for a ski helmet or a cycling helmet for that matter is not the same in the us as it is in europe uh, uh, for example in the european testing you test for in 5.42 meters per second in the u.s testing you test at 6.26 so it's a rather big difference in velocity when you hit it and then there's also a rather big difference in the maximum allowed uh, acceleration uh, to pass the european standard you need to be sub 250 g's in the american testing you need to be sub 300 so so kind of the joke there is that uh, that it's assumed by the kind of medical expertise in Europe that Europeans die at 250 Gs because that's the maximum allowed level. But while Americans are a bit, I mean, they have a bit uh, thicker head. Yeah, that definitely. Sense, they die at 300. Uh, so so that and but there as an engineer, then you have a, someone have then introduced to you a, a set of 
parameters and you need to make the choice. Should I optimize for the two meter, 6.26 meter per second hit or the 1.5 meter, 5.42 meter per second hit? And anyone who's kind of set up the tire pressure or the air pressure in a fork on a bike knows the difference between hitting from, you know, one and a half to two meters. It's not going to be the same pressure uh, or the same stiffness, which going to bring you the optimal um the optimal shock absorption in those cases. So um, so that's kind of the, the, the back side of, of that coin. Okay, you just said a lot and there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on in there. So I want to back up a little bit and just unpack this. I'm only on my second cup of coffee today. So maybe, maybe our audience tracked everything you just said perfectly well. So this will just be for my benefit. I like the fact that you've just gotten into a couple of different numbers. You talked about 250 versus 300 and then was it 5.4 versus 6.2 yeah, 5.42 versus 6.26 yeah so so the so if we start with the 250 and 300 that's uh, th- those that's acceleration in the unit of g so everyone knows that or not everyone maybe but but it, the the standard ac- acceleration like if you drop something from your hand that's going to leave your hand with the, that object will leave the hand and be pulled to the ground with uh, with an acceleration of 1g so that's one gravitational force and then um 250 of those so 250 times that that's the maximum allowed acceleration for a european certified helmet uh, certifying for an American standard is normally 300. And let's keep it going in, in the details. What are we dropping? So we're dropping a head form uh, instrumented with uh, accelerometers. We're putting that head form into a helmet and when, then we drop the whole assembly. And we're not, I mean, to complicate further, we, we're not dropping it in the exact same way. The impact machines differ a bit between the different standards and the accelerometer setup is, is not the same either. Uh, so, so you're essentially comparing apples and pears. And that's, uh, that's also the tricky thing when, when, we, when we see testing and testing getting published from various institutes, it's, it could be a small fraction of the total testing that's going on. So it doesn't really give you any answers. Uh, it will just give us a hint, um, you know, it, it, does it make a good fork uh, in, on your mountain bike if it's up, set up at 150 PSI? Uh, who knows? It depends what you're going to use it for, right? 5.42? Yeah, so that's that's just 5.42 meters per second. So that's the impact speed in the European testing. The American one is 6.26. Okay, normally, uh, but then you have you also drop at different anvils, so different surfaces. So in the American standard, the 6.26. That's I assume there that we're talking about the flat. And you also have hemispherical or um, kind of curbstone or simulating a ski, and then we drop from lower heights. But the reason why it's 6.26 in the American standard is that you drop it from two meters. Uh, the, the European 5.42, that's dropping from one and a half meters. So it's just the, the theoretical speed in free fall. It will always bring you to the you know, more or less the same speed. So if you and, and the reason we have two meters and one and a half meters, it's um, it's essentially that when you when you fall from standing, people are between one and a half and two two meters. So it's the same. The old I think in in um, in, in in high school, everyone learned that if you if you if you hold a bullet and if you shoot the bullet horizontally, they're both gonna drop at the same time, right? The only the only thing that determines the vertical component of their speed when they hit the ground is high above the ground, uh, how high they, they started, right? If as long as you shoot horizontally, and that's why we have one and a half and two meters drop. So so and, and that also brings another you know, complicated issue to this. Like if someone is riding their bike at, the, you know, 60 kilometers per hour in the Tour de France, uh, th- does it make sense that we test their helmet in, uh, in uh, you know, one, one third of that? Um, one third speed, of that speed, then, yeah. 
yeah and and as long as they're not going to go flat into a, a freestanding wall or a lamppost i think we're good because they just like that bullet you know they, they're still going to have the vertical component uh, which is going to be the same depending on the, how, how tall they are or how how high high they're falling from uh, and then there are tons of other things uh, that's coming into that and that's bringing us into another interesting dimension of helmet safety which is the kind of uh, the, that stop that when you hit the ground and it starts to rotate or does it slide how much does it slide how much is going to be rotating and and, and so on uh, where a whole new new field that essentially wasn't uh, existing when when i started in this 15 years ago no one's talking about uh, rotational violence so it's, it's kind of one of those innovations that's come along the way so i really like your analogy of air pressure in a fork. And I think that's going to really help people. And so I want to stay on that for a second. But we have heard other companies talk about, okay, well, we like to just make sure we're passing certifications for both kind of the EU standard and the North American standard. That way we're kind of covered for both. But I think what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, but then to go back to our fork analogy, you're kind of just trying to find a middle ground or average, not necessarily setting up or optimizing your fork pressure for the specific terrain you're about to go ride. We like to be what I call appropriately vague around here when, you know, just to help people understand what we're talking about. So it, Tell me if you agree with this then. It's like, okay, if you are truly just trying to pass both tests, that means you're finding a middle ground and not necessarily then excelling or optimizing for either test. Is it, am I tracking this okay? Yeah, you're 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 absolutely right, and I think that's uh, that's also one of the dangers with uh, you know um, institutions publishing tests because if they if they go strictly on the European one, for example, if I would optimize the helmet, and and overall I agree with your statement there that uh, a helmet that passes in more uh, conditions. So if I would add three, four, I mean we, one of our biggest learnings back in the days was when we did a, we made a helmet that that was certified for skiing cycling uh, skateboarding huh, everything and and uh, and the roller skating and water sports both for the us and europe in the same construction and when we started to to go to the test lab and said that this is what we want to do they, they just laughed at us and said there's no way you can do that because the standards are vastly different you cannot optimize the construction it would become a bastard and, and in one way it did but it, it taught us a lot about uh, about um, helmet testing and certification and the different uh, the, the helmet in question is called receptor plus and it was one of the biggest innovations we had made and we have had a lot of technology trickling down from that uh, but but as you say it's all about optimization and if i knew uh, that the magazine or someone would test it. Only the European testing, for example. Then, then of course, you can pick and choose your parameters and set it up for that test, and and, and you would shine. But does it make it better uh, in as an overall product? I, I'm not too sure. So, so therefore, it's it's important to to have that whole. Uh, perspective and I think that's what we and, and, and other brands are doing as well to try to add on and really see those safety standards like the basic one that, that is really the baseline so so trying what, what extra features uh, do someone get if they buy a POC helmet for example and, and, and in our case that's anything from kind of raising the speed we did a study uh, many years ago, in, in, in uh, 2006 uh, looking at, um, at the speeds in, in World Cup um, uh, ski racing and, and realizing that it doesn't make sense then that the, the, the helmet that you have racing the Han and Cameron and that's essentially the same certification that the, that the kid uh, learning to ski and that's practically standing still they both have the same safety certification sticker so we started to look at what how, how should we raise the, the bar do we need to test them in higher speeds and so on and once you start to do that and you have optimized your construction for lower speed then it collapses right so you need to to work with with other um, parameters and, and most importantly you need to increase the dimensions and that uh, later led to a lot of innovation in the helmet field and, and ultimately now we have much thicker and completely different certification 
education on the World Cup skiers helmet. The kind of the the International Skiing Federation also caught on, and now you need since 2013 you need to have a a a much more complete testing setup to to be able to start in um, in the World Cup. And I think that's um, that, that's one example. But we do other testing as well. There was a a big project two years ago together with Volvo, the car manufacturer, where we uh, we saw in statistics that you know hitting from uh, just hitting the ground on your bike that's the most common accident, but uh, the, the real serious accident where people really get badly injured that's when they when they hit uh, a car and different parts of the car. Uh, because the speeds are much higher, and if we have optimized the, uh, the helmet for you know hitting the ground in a free fall, and then you get hit by a car, the helmet's not going to help you. So bringing uh, our helmets into the car, this uh, car test lab, and shooting helmets, instrumented helmets with headforms, different parts of the cars, and and trying to from there figure out uh, what how, how do we need to update the design of the helmet to make it safer when you actually hit the A-pillar uh, or the windshield or the bonnet of a car. So, so adding on more more testing like that, more scenarios is always going to, because we don't know where people are going to crash, right? Okay. You just kind of blew my mind because I hadn't, I'm still thinking about crashing among aspen trees, you know, mountain biking or whatever, or on snow. I hadn't been thinking about windshields. Help me understand this. When you're talking about like, what does it look like when uh, one of our helmets gets hit it by a windshield at 40 miles an hour, is this testing you're just doing on your road cycling helmets or you're looking at this for mountain bike helmets as well? Like, what's the scope of this? Yeah, in, in that specific test, we used uh, road bike helmets and commuting helmets, uh, we, we, which we kind of said was the biggest likelihood of, of being hit by a car. Uh, but I think that the learnings there are, are pretty universal uh, because the, the helmets kind of from we have very good comparative data on how they perform in the standardized testing. So we can definitely make some some conclusions there. I think one interesting aspect is also that we learned that the cars in many places, uh, where especially where they test in the in the standardized testing on cars, they actually provide pretty good protection. So it, if you hit the car at the right place of the bonnet or the right place of the windshield, it's really going to... Um, to work as cushion and even provide much more travel than, than we can bring with the helmet because the, the you know the, the hood of the car can can move um, almost half a, you know half a foot if you hit it at the right place but then you have other areas on the car like the a pillar or the top of the of the windshield that that frame there is, is not going to give you so much because it needs to take care of other kind of violence when you crash the car so so I think it was really an interesting um, learning experience that uh, because in in the lab environment you're also you're constantly optimizing towards different surfaces whether it's flat or hemispheric and so on and and the car that brings such a big uh, amount of different surfaces with different properties so you really need you know you need to to have a, a much more holistic approach to the whole design of the helmet if you want to protect um, from that scenario as well. <laughs> Nothing to it. Simple. All sounds real simple to me. I'm real excited to ask you this next question because I don't think I really ever imagined in my life I'd be having this conversation. We're going to talk about head forms. This is a term you've used a couple times in this conversation. And um, and I it's not an everyday term. Not a lot of people in everyday life are going around talking about head forms. But this is pretty important when we're talking about testing stuff, right? So, First of all, is it fair to give people a start point, a head form? Could they picture like the head of a mannequin? Yeah, I think that's a really good, uh, that's a good analogy. And then, then somehow, I mean, the, the, the reason those head forms exist is that we, we need to put something into the helmet yeah. <laughs> and, and to, to, to drop it. You cannot, I mean, you could probably send people out, but they wouldn't, it wouldn't last long. <laughs> so, so you, you would, you, you need to send something in there. You need, need to be repeated uh, or, or repeatability needs to be very high. So it needs to be the same. If you refer to one test standard, you need to be the same head form. Otherwise, 
you know, if it tests in Italy or Spain or Sweden or the US uh, so that you can compare results. So therefore, there, there are a number of kind of standardized head forms where, again, different uh, committees and different countries have decided that this is, uh, uh, this is the way uh, a head, a human head looks. And, and the, the most common one for us is the EN960 head form standard, which is the European standardized head form. So it comes in a range of different sizes. I think they're called AEMJ and, and so on. And, and they have a circumference then of 50 centimeters, 52 54, 57, so on. So it, it essentially uh, translates to wh- whatever head circumference. And then the weight and the overall shape of those simulates what the human head would weigh in that same size. So therefore, if you want to sell a helmet, you want to market it and sell the, that, or say that this one passes a 54 to 60 head form, then you need to have tested it and verified that it's working with the uh, with those different heads. And then, of course, a 54 head form is not going to weigh the same as a 60. Uh, the 60 is going to be heavier. Um, on the other hand, the 60 is going to have a bigger circumference. So the surface area pressure is going to be lower compared to the other one. So the, you said the smaller head form will kind of penetrate the construction more. Uh, that calls for a bit of a higher density, again, setting your spring a bit higher, uh, while the other one is going to spread the surface pressure out a bit more. and um, and so you can l- kind of lower your pressure in the fork again. So, so there are um, there are a couple of parameters, or there are very many parameters actually going into this. Um, so you are tuning each helmet. Let me have you pick a specific POC helmet model, and then like, let's just talk about that for a second. What do you want to propose? Um, yeah, I, I think it, um, w- the choices we make, it depends a bit on the area of use. I think we, we just released a helmet called um, Corpel, for, uh, for example. That one is certified for the European, the American, and the Australian standard uh, in, the same, in the very same construction. Uh, and it also has uh, a bunch of rotational testing in those protocols. Um, and that also brings another head form in, 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 into the equation and, and another type of testing. While other helmets, like if you take, um, uh, if you take some of the most um, optimized helmets that we see on, um, on the Tour de France cyclists, for example, there, there it's about really optimizing shaving weight as much as possible. And, and they, in some cases, they prefer that we, we only want the European uh, certified helmet because that one, since we, as we, as we remember, is testing against 250 G from a 5.42 meters dr- per second drop instead of 6.26. So you, you put a bit, uh, a bit less air into that fork. So in, in back to the fork analogy, so that helmet is overall going to be a bit lighter than its American counterpart. So in some cases, we, we actually choose that. Uh, so if we want to make the um, kind of the lightest helmet in the world for a climber so on, then it, it could be beneficial for the end user that you certify it for uh, the European standard. And have you then, uh, could you safely say that, okay, so you've given up a bit of safety? Um, not necessarily, because it depends uh, where they want to crash and how fast, because it's going to be better in the European standard uh, than the, the one where we, like Portal that I was mentioning, where we have optimized it uh, for, or we have Kind of decided to to make it work in three standards, then we then then we're going to make it automatically worse in the in the European one because we haven't optimized so hard against that one. So, how many different sort of models of head forms are there? Are there like four, and then different sizes in each of those different head forms, right? But like, I'm just trying to home in on. Most companies are probably looking at two different head forms and then in across a whole number of sizes, or is it two or three or four? Help us on this one. Yeah, I would say the, 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 there are there are many different ones uh, depending on standard, but the main three I would say is that first is the EN nine hundred and sixty that I was mentioning. Then you have the uh, the hybrid three, which is the um, 
um, the one we we and others use uh, a lot for uh, rotational violence testing, which is essentially a rubber coated. It looks like the, those. Uh, it comes from the hybrid three dolls that you, or the mannequins that you see in in car safety labs. You know the brown ones. Uh, then you have um, if you. I mean, we we're chatting a bit about Virginia Tech before they test the headphone call, called the uh, NOCS. Uh, AE, I think, is the abbreviation of that one. So that's a. So those are the main, uh, the main three, and they all have kind of different properties. Um, a lot of the debate there in the helmet industry, if there is a debate, but it's kind of which one do you choose in different scenarios because they they differ in terms of uh, of um, most importantly the friction. I would say how how much do they slide uh, against the helmet? Should you have um, depending on which one you choose, you, you get different results. Yep. So that's that's the main issue for going through a number of different head forms is the friction issue. Yeah, the friction, but then you also have the weight and the, and, and the overall properties of them. And, and of course, the, there is also, I mean, w- when you decide that people look this way, uh, then you have automatically excluded a lot of people that doesn't look that way. And, uh, and we, um, you, the, uh, I'm not sure if we'll talk about it later, but, but people's heads don't look the same. Uh, but <laughs> Turns on the out. other hand, as a helmet, uh, as a helmet designer, you want to, you, or you will be more successful if you come up with a shape that um, suits as many as possible. You you can do that in a bunch of different ways. But if you're used to trying on ski boots, for example, you can have some something which is really. Um, you know, the, if you compare a, a high-end race boot, it will be very defined in the fit, and it's very tough to find one that fits exactly. But if you take the the kind of the lowest range, uh, cheapest one, it will be having a lot of cushion in different. Uh, and and it's the same for us. I mean, if you find a shape that's really compliant, then uh, there is a risk that it doesn't mat- match your your head exactly. Uh, because you have so much uh, uh, compliance in there, and then it might not be optimized for your head uh, exactly. Again, getting back to how much of your head is actually touching the helmet uh, surface and what's that going to lead to in terms of surface pressure when you actually crash. And in our last conversation in this series, we were talking a bit about the possibilities of more customization in the future when it comes to helmets. And um, Steve Belfay from Pret, this is the conversation we were having. We were talking specifically about ski boots and the fact that, you know, these days, most of us are not just skiing in a stock liner, right? We can go bake that liner and get it to mold exactly to our foot shape. We can get a foam injected liner, Um, You know, there's a lot of different things happening to kind of customize that product to our feet. And we were sort of wondering about, like, will this be a move we see, whether it's through head scanning or mapping on individual people, um, or whether it is just doing things like you go in, there's maybe a standard shell for a helmet, but then there is going to be an injection process or something you know, you put the helmet on and then you inject some foam into a, a liner to precisely fit my head or your head. What do you think? And Steve brought up the thought of like, okay, yeah, but that's going to wildly affect things like safety certifications. You know, if we're testing helmets and you're sending them out, you go get tested. Yep. This one passes a safety standard. Then that goes and sits on a shelf. How would you do that? You know, certification passing if we're doing all of these in-store adjustments to a helmet that we're used to doing on the ski boot side. There's a lot there, but what do you think about all this? Yeah, I think that the, the, what you bring up is definitely what makes it a bit more complicated to, to customize a helmet because you, you as a helmet manufacturer and you put this certification sticker, you promise that yeah. this one is going to be consistent. It's always going to have those dimensions and so on. As, and as soon as you start to, to customize, is you're, you're deviating from that and, uh, and, and you're not allowed to. But, but we also see, I think there is a, a, a British brand that makes a 3D printed helmet. So you scan your head and then they 3D print it for you and you get that perfect um, you know, following the head shape perfectly. Um, 
but and I think uh, I'm, I'm not knowing all of the details how they have managed to certify that. But my assumption is that they have certified kind of a minimal distance, and then they just add more protected material from that. And so that would be the way to go. Uh, the, the complicated thing then is that we know that people, um, it's, it's good for them or for the users not to have, I mean, the, the less material they can have on their, their head, the less bulk, the less dimensions, it's preferable and to build in as much po- as possible protection into that. So, so just having adding customization uh, materials that uh, can increase the weight and, and, and so on without really giving you that, it, it, the, the benefit really needs to be bigger in terms of fit. I think, and, and I, I talked about ski boots and uh, and that's uh, it's an, an okay analogy, but it's not perfect because there is a performance increase of a tight-fitting ski boot that the race skier will enjoy. But we rarely see that people prefer to have that high pressure. There are no performance benefits on on ski ski helmets or, or cycling helmets as long as they they need to be kind of snug. And they, but as long as long as it starts or directly when it starts to be pressure, uh, it's discomfort uh, almost immediately. So so trying to find that balance and rather shave a bit of weight and and make sure that the center of gravity in the right place so it doesn't bounce around with your your head and so on. I think that uh, you have even more to win there. And then it's kind of lower hanging fruit than starting to, to customize uh, too much. Uh, and I think also those adjustment systems that we see both on uh, primarily on, on, on cycling helmets, that's where they came in, right? And, and they we see them making their way into more and more ski helmets now. We even uh, last year, we released a, a kind of World Cup certified uh, ski racing uh, helmet that you, you can tighten where the um, the adjustment system needs to be designed in a way so you can still stand in your tucked position in, in downhill, for example, which uh-huh. you cannot do with a traditional um, kind of the, the ratchet system that sit low in your neck, for example. So I think uh, adjustment systems in helmets can do um, a lot. Uh, the drawback there is when you start to depend on them too much. So you make a helmet certified from 50 all the way up to 60 centimeters. I mean, they, we can accomplish that, but then um, you, you're, you're you will even, I mean, in in the case of the lightest head form that you can put in there, it will be a very big difference up to the biggest one. So you you have chosen then the spring rate, which is not going to be ideal for 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 either one of them. So as long as we can have a few more sizes, uh, we can also provide a bit better protection for your head. You're making me tired just thinking about all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, okay, one last question on that. I really like that we're talking a lot about tuning of of these different helmets for different tests and the rest to get certain results and get a certain level of quote unquote safety from certain impacts. One more round of an analogy in the ski world. So one of the things that we will talk about and some manufacturers will do it, others will not, but like adjusting the specific flex pattern of a ski if you're making you know let's take a random example um we'll take a blizzard coaches ski if we are so we got one ski the the same ski but we're looking at one length say in a i don't know what the shortest length of the coaches is but let's say they're making it available in a 171 centimeter length but then also making it available up to like a 194 centimeter length, right? And so you can make a case, well, in the shorter ski, we want to actually go with a softer ski flex, tune it softer. But in the longest length, assuming we're going to have a very hard charging skier or a much heavier skier, we're going to want to stiffen that ski up, right? I, I, I just want to make sure I'm clear. When you guys are working with different helmet models that you're selling on the when you're making that or offering that in a size small versus the largest size of the helmet are you fine-tuning the amount of material used in each of these helmets or does it you know or we stand with one quote-unquote ski flex regardless of length or size 
No, they have uh, they have different. Uh, in in our case, is mostly the the densities of the different materials. So essentially, how much how much material do you pack in there? So I think that that analogy to the fork and how much air you put into it uh, that's uh, that's essentially the same, and that's what we do. And in in general, that um, lower or that smaller head, like if you compare the the, the smallest uh, head that you uh, or, or a kid of um, you know. Uh, six seven years old they probably have a 50 centimeter head form and that head will weigh less than than kind of the biggest guy you know with a 62 uh, so it's it it holds um, somewhat true that we need to compensate for that lower uh, that lower weight of that lighter skull uh, and, and we do that with lower densities uh, but I, I think I mentioned it earlier as well that the circumference of those head form the 62 is, is big and the 50 is smaller so when uh, so what happens when you drop the helmet and the head the helmet and the head form I mean it all stops uh, but then the, the head form starts kind of penetrating the helmet from the inside right so with that tighter curvature, of the smaller head form, it's going to bring um, a, a higher surface pressure to that helmet. So it's going to, to also penetrate the helmet more. So the difference in density is not going to be as big as you would imagine it to be if you just looked at the re- relation of the weight, because there is also that uh, tighter circumference of the smaller head form kind of playing in the opposite direction. But but therefore, I mean, we we... If, if you try to optimize, you say we're going to optimize this helmet for a 50 uh, centimeter skull, um, then we do a lot of testing. You kind of um, probably mold then uh, 10, 20 different densities, and, and then you start to tweak it from there and, and decide what's the optimal. And then it's not going to be only that hit because we hit essentially every single surface of the whole helmet. And you don't have the same circumference of the head at the side of the head compared to your forehead. So there's also things that you do tweaking the geometry because the the density or the stiffness of the helmet, it's um, you can vary it in different areas of the helmet, but it's a bit complicated and it's a bit easier uh, and and you get better molding and better uniform result if you do that by adopting the actual geometry of the helmet instead so you can um, kind of make a uh, yeah you, you cut out more materials and you, you optimize the whole helmet for different uh, areas of the head so to say the stuff you've been talking about for like the last two minutes am i right to think we now basically just entered into an answer to the question of like what about kids helmets when we're talking about smaller heads and shapes, is that is that fair or because I want to ask you yeah, about I think kids that's, helmets? That's uh, that's um, uh, that's something that's really I, I think close to the um, the DNA of the brand. I think that's where we in one way started out with with ski racing kids. I mean, you have a lot of you have a lot of ski racers that are grown ups, but if you look at the overall, the, the, there is such a big uh, volume of of uh, ski racing kids and. So uh, and and that's where we kind of come from, and uh, even younger than that, and then the, those you know toddlers learning to ski, and that was one of the first projects that we did back in 2006. And when we brought the kind of that scope, saying that we want to protect those kids between four six years old, those that kind of the, the parent is still choosing the helmet for them before they, they start to decide really for themselves exactly what helmet they want. What should we think about and, and what do we, and we had the assumption uh, or, you know, that the kid's um, brain is still under development and, and so on. So, so it, it calls for, uh, you know, a higher level of protection. And, and we said kind of what, like we normally do, that if, if there are no expenses spared, how how good can we make this helmet? So let's make it just with the same technology as we do with the World Cup skiers. Pack everything in there, in there with the Kevlar and the, and and all these uh, extra fancy materials, and and let it cost whatever it's going to cost, you know. And that was a different approach to the kind of kids' helmet industry at the time, which I believe is this was a lot about those really low prices. Just a kid, you know, they they they're going to use it one one year and they're not going to take care of it and so on. But uh, so I think that approach was a bit uh, different to really to use the, the the most advanced construction that we had, based it on our skull comp, which was the the downhill World Cup uh, ski helmet at the time. Um, the other um, thing that we 
we started looking into because adjustment systems weren't really existing in ski helmets back then. And we said that if, if someone's going to make this investment and spend uh, you know two hundred dollars on a kid's helmet instead of twenty as they used to, then it's good that the helmet can grow with the kid. Uh, so how do we how do we compensate for that and building it and starting making adjustment systems, which was something new back then. Uh, then I think the biggest finding was actually when we brought the scope to our um, doctors. We have a, a kind of a scientific forum called the POC Lab, where we meet with um, a really good neurologist, a really good spinal cord injury doctor. And, and so to really get that uh, scientific uh, background, because we are not, uh, we don't have a medical training, any of us in, in our design team. So when we brought the scope to them, they, they uh, kind of started looking into statistics and said that these kids are actually... Uh, they don't go very fast and they're very used to falling and they don't fall from that high because they're small. But when they really, really get injured, when there are, you know, backs broken and, and, and so on, it's when, uh, um, you know, old grown-ups like myself on the Koshi skis are going way too fast and coming over and there's a kid behind oh, that, no. uh, that ledge, you know. You jerk, uh, taking out all those kids yeah. on your Koshis. Exactly. So, so that's so. So then, and that opened our eyes too. So, if we really want to protect them, we can do something with a better helmet. But if we avoid that, they actually get hit by that. You know, forty-five-year-old uh, going way too fast. Um, then we can really save their lives. So that whole project, uh, on top of you know making the best helmet, became a visibility project. So the, the, the poquito helmets, as we call them, so po poquito, poquito, kind of Spanish for something small, right? The poquito family uh, from that day uh, was only released in a bright orange fluorescent color. So the helmet came with that color. There was also a vest supplied that you kind of in the same fluorescent orange put over the kids' clothes. And then there was a lamp blinking kind of stroboscope uh, uh, lamp on the helmet as well. Uh, because we said that if we try to eliminate the best we can that accident scenario, then um, it's only the kid falling and they're used to that. Speeds are lower and all of that. So, so I think that was the biggest finding. And that whole perspective of not only... You know, we've talked a lot about geeky lab uh, environment here today, but actually lifting it out into the real life scenario. Someone's going to use this one. Someone's going to what, what, what different scenarios are they exposed to, whether it's, you know, 20, 15 years later, bringing the helmets into the Volvo lab, hitting them against cars. It all co comes from that kind of same thinking. And, and we applied uh, learnings from that when we started making road bike helmets uh, in 2013 uh, or 2012 when we saw that yeah, you know cyclists hitting uh, the pavement that's going to hurt but when they're hit by a car can we help from that uh, again bringing out that fluorescent orange comparing that to other fluorescent colors we had the you know fluorescent yellow is very common uh, but comparing them to the you know, surfaces around a rural road where you have a lot of uh, yellow and green already, we decided, okay, it's going to be the orange, we're going to make it visible earlier. So I think that that uh, color has then kind of become a, one of the staples in our assortment. There's more or less always this fluorescent orange pock uh, helmet, and uh, including the, the Kortal helmet that I just mentioned, which is our latest release in, in mountain bike. You can also get it in that fluorescent orange. So it's, it's become kind of a, a signature of the brand in one way. Sounds like this might take us into our next question. I, I wanted to ask you about where you thought the biggest advances in helmet tech and R&D were being made today. And you've now, I mean, first of all, just started talking about for kids' helmets in particular, the color. That's not really one I'd thought of, but going higher visibility. And now, and man, dude, it breaks my heart hearing about the number of like road cyclists getting hit by cars and the rest, where now when we move specifically into that realm, being more visible, as visible as possible, or for any commuter, right? This is a massive thing. And You've talked about this a little bit, but talk a little bit more in terms of what's happening on like just making cyclists more visible um, in terms of some of the tech we're seeing now or things you 
could imagine coming through in the future. Yeah, I think you you, uh, you mentioned the the fluorescent uh, colors, for example. If we if we can increase that level, and I, I, I mentioned earlier that we more or less always in our range we have that uh, choice because I think that the important thing here is that, that there is a choice, and and people don't do the same thing uh, every day. I mean, I I, I rode my bike to. Um, to where we are now in, in, in kind of the holiday house. Uh, I did uh, a 260 kilometer road ride uh, alone the other day. And, and that um, it takes a kind of full day and I'm all alone out with the cars. And then I, I dressed up completely in, in, in the fluorescent orange because I know that's going to increase my likelihood of not being hit by a car, which would probably kill me. But on the other hand, some some people really don't like that look they want to you know stealth or whatever the biggest trend is you know and and for us um, you know, we also see that some people i mean if, if they are racing one day and they know that this is a track it's only going to be me here uh, maybe you don't want that fluorescent orange but when you're out practicing or you're out training on your own then you might have so you might have two or t- three different helmets and i know that 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 um, uh, kind of vanity aspect of it is uh, it's important as well as a brand to think about that you actually want to have an an offer that people will um, you know support and and actually go out and buy because if they if if you make the helmet too too strange strange or too obtrusive uh, people are going to say that okay I'm, I'm skipping this one I'm, I'm taking choosing another brand and then we haven't helped anyone right um, and and then I think there are other ways of uh, increasing visibility as well. You don't need to paint it orange. I mean, there, you can do a lot of things with lights. And I think we, we see some trends with like you know lights always on during the days and so on. They, they, these are all good things, you know. And we we have just um, released or we have presented a helmet that will come out later this year that has a kind of a permanent light that automatically switches on with sensors and um, the the things that, or the, the drawback of bringing lights out is that I think the general feeling is that people don't really think that they need more things that needs a charge, you know, you need an, uh, another charger. Was it this thing charged now when I'm going out and so on? So, so this helmet that, that I'm mentioning here, uh, it's called the Omni Eternal. That's one that has a printed solar cell, um, throughout the, the top of the, the helmet. So that, uh, that solar cell is always going to charge uh, the light. So you, and so there are no charging ports, no uh, extra thing to think about. It automatically switches on um, due to the capacity sensors when you put it on your head. And it will always charge when you're outside and, and the sun is out, or uh, as long as it's daylight. So, so I think uh, things like that, because we're, you're also thinking a bit of, or talking a bit about like, like what's, what's happening with with helmet tech down the line and we see that that kind of integration of um, picking technology that can one way or another enhance your safety whether it's um, you know sensors or something else the drawback of all those things is that they always consume energy and you don't want to charge them because it's one more thing to charge again so if combining these kind of solar cells like like in in the case of our new helmets uh, with sensors you can also gather data and so on that we learn a bit more about um, about the impacts and how people crash you know because uh, after all the the lab testing that we've been talking about today it's a lot about simplification and guessing and so if we can gather real life data that will help us a lot so i kind of want to let you take this conversation where you'd like to go if you want to tell us about a product or two that you are just really excited about that's in the current POC lineup where do you want to take us um, yes, I, I was mentioning uh, uh, the Quartal helmet, for example, uh, there where we have uh, certified it for a lot of standards and really also try to, I think a lot of what we do is also about uh, pushing the, the perception a bit of what is uh, uh, kind of dimensions and, and look that people can accept. I think if you take the first trail helmet that we made, the, the Trabec uh, 
back in, in 2014, I think, uh, we, we really pushed it to, to add volume and add a lot of surface coverage in the neck. And, and some people thought it looked really freaky. But now, if you compare it to today's uh, enduro and trail helmet, because we followed up with the, the Tectal that had way more coverage. And now with the quarter, we've done it over again, because I think it comes back to I mean, our discussions there. How do you want to optimize uh, no matter how you no matter how you look at that uh, testing, the, the more volume we have, uh, the more protection we can bring. You can imagine a car with a you know very very long, um, very long hood. You know it it, uh, it will not be very uh, smooth to park it, but it, but it will be awesome if you uh, if you make a good crumple zone. And and helmets is all about crumpling zones. You know and and. Um, I think people talk about these uh, novel materials that will bring more shock absorption in one way, but then then you need to ask yourself, what what is shock absorption? Is there really such a thing? The only thing we can do is is actually, I mean, we can take away energy and we can transform it to heat, but the other thing we can do is actually just to, to spread uh, over a longer time period. That's how you you have a velocity, you have a maximum allowed acceleration, and then your your only weapon is essentially to increase the time of the impact. And the only way to increase the time of the impact is to make a long uniform travel, uh, and there thereby you have saved the brain. So so we will never see helmets, you know, at the uh, dimensions that are. Kind of under what the, the because the physics kind of dictates uh, if you know your maximum allowed acceleration you can calculate I think it's around um, six millimeters is the thinnest theoretic possible helmet and we will never see those because we don't have the materials and you you cannot get a perfect uniform linear acceleration uh, but we will move kind of towards that but then if we could instead push the dimensions of the helmets uh, we could also uh, actually it's a bit um, contradictionary but you, you can actually make more than also in terms of lighter weight because you could lower the density more uh, than you would so to make a to, to make a lighter helmet is actually easier if you may if you're allowed to make it a bit thicker hang on to make a lighter helmet it's it's easier to make a lighter helmet if you go thicker or you have more coverage. Yeah, if you uh, coverage will not help in in terms of weight. Uh, it will only give you more protection depending on where you hit your head. And so we, we like coverage in that sense. But but if you compare, you know, all that's equal. Uh, and, and if you're trying to make the helmet very, very thin, uh, you will need to increase the, the, the stiffness of the helmet for it not to bottom out. And you need to increase that stiffness and the density more uh, than, uh, than you would lose on the other end. So if you instead were increasing the dimension, you would be able to go really, really low in your kind of back to the spring rate analogy. So you can uh, apply a very, very low density and you will actually overall save more weight. Uh, and I think that's why kind of we and other brands, we're constantly trying to push because it's all, I think we touched it a little bit. There is a vanity aspect here that's extremely important. Uh, we want people to, to because you're re- replacing your, your hair or your cap or whatever you like to wear in your head, then you're, you're replacing this with this artificial industrial designed object. So it's a big responsibility of us to try to, you know, make that actually look and feel comfortable when you look yourself in the mirror. And how can we do that and still increase the dimension uh, to, to make it as, as light, and, uh, light and as safe as possible. So I think that's where kind of we need to take it a little bit step by step. If you take it kind of too far, people will decide that that one looks too strange or it is too strange. You know? Yep. And so this is a kind of fundamental tension in helmet design, the consumer wants sort of the smallest thing typically on their head. If I'm a designer and my job is to make an actually safe product, I would like you to be, I'd like to have a lot more volume up there on the head. And so, but I guess if for that listener out there who is saying, I am just obsessed with the safety i want the most impact protection that i can possibly have out there when i'm skiing or snowboarding or mountain biking or road riding that person should understand then you might be 
interested one in more coverage is better than less coverage and a bigger diameter is generally going to be an advantage over a smaller volume size. Is that fair? Did I get that right? Or yeah, yeah, that's uh, all that uh, all that makes sense. Uh, and then I think you, you were mentioning and kind of the designer's task of making the helmet really as safe as possible. That's going to uh, to be to be good and ticking all your boxes in your job. And then the the, the consumer wants to look good on on their head. But I think it, and that's kind of what what makes it so interesting in our job that we're not. I mean, we're in one one foot is in in fashion in one way because we address people, and and one one foot is in 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 advanced uh, medical science and materials technology and engineering. But then, what's what's not to be neglected either is the performance aspect, because no matter how how safe or how good looking I make a, a helmet, and then trying to give it to an athlete who's been training for four years to win the Olympics, and they're going to say no, but this one is is slower or less ventilated or heavier than uh, this other option. They they are going to choose uh, something else. So so then you've added a, a third. Um, component here which is critical because we we have also always said that the, the kind of in the in the best pop helmets you you should be able to 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 win the toughest race in the world and it's really a kind of a promise to those athletes that's been uh, training hard for many years that we we are not going to be the ones letting them down in terms of performance so that's uh, so i think that that aspect brings uh, something extra um, spicy to that mix so to say that you really need to think about performance uh, the design uh, and the safety, then, then you have the kind of the whole package. Well, Oscar, this has been really good. I've really appreciated learning personally a lot more about how Pac is approaching a lot of these complex issues. And I think you've done a really good job of articulating that today. So uh, very much appreciate the time and uh, hope we get an opportunity to do this again down the line. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Well, and it's uh, it's it's fun to talk about you know helmets and safety and it, it gets you thinking. So it's uh, this has been um, really enjoyable. Well, great. Well, listen, enjoy your evening. Good luck as you continue to uh, work on these complex issues and trying to keep the world safe out there. So uh, good luck. Thank you, and uh, good luck too. Bye. Okay, it is now time for our weekly what we're celebrating segment. It is currently exactly 10.30 p.m. on Thursday, July 1st, and I have in my hand a glass of Whistlepig 12-year-old rye whiskey, which was hand-bottled on the Whistlepig farm in Shoreham, Vermont. And per usual, as most of you probably know by now, I'm sipping this one neat, because that's what I do with the 12-year-old. And this week, I basically want to celebrate a good week. Here's to good weeks. There were just lots of good conversations this week, and if you haven't yet listened to the conversation that I had with Matt Randall, who is the co-founder of Spot, that conversation is over on our Blister podcast feed, and you should seriously listen to that thing. We have received a number of great responses to that conversation, and I'm really proud of the work that Spot is doing, and I'm honestly happy that we're able to help kind of spread the message. It's important stuff. If I were you, I would start paying attention to Spot. Pay attention to the amount of news that you are going to hear about them over the next week or two or three. This is a big deal in the outdoor industry, and I'm psyched on what they're doing. And then I happen to have more good meetings tomorrow, some that I'm excited about tomorrow afternoon. Plus, I see my orthopedic surgeon tomorrow and maybe a physical therapist, and I'm hoping that both of them clear me to start doing more strength training on this messed up shoulder of mine and uh you know honestly in the scheme of things it's feeling pretty good would love to just start getting that thing strong and built up so that's it that's what i got but it's been a good week hope yours has been too and i hope you all have a great weekend and that brings us to the end of this episode of gear 30 i want to say thanks to oscar for the conversation thanks to the strikingly handsome justin bob for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening from all of us here in gunnison and crested butte please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we will talk to you again on monday over on our blister podcast bye everybody